And thanks for joining us now on KVCR4, KVC Arts, Arts and Entertainment, as well as the people and places providing it. I'm David Fleming. I'm joined now by Dennis Tufano, former lead and original member of the Buckinghams. A little bit later, we'll, of course, hear about Buckingham's material. But let's go into the program with you covering Bobby Darren. Somewhere beyond the sea, somewhere waiting for me. My lover stands on golden sands and watches the ships that go sailing somewhere. Last we spoke, you were doing the Bobby Darren show, and I've been just really soaking in the live disc that I picked up from you at that point. And so yeah. I want to go into this with uh, what got you into Bobby Darren. And I don't mean, hey, this could be a good stage act, but rather, no. what was the first song that first got to you at, at whatever age it might have been for you? Well, the first time I saw Bobby Darren, which I became an instant fan, was on the Dick Clark show that he had, which was like a concert, not the American Bandstand. It was sponsored by Beach Nut Spearmint Gum or something. Mm. And it had all of the young stars on it. They had Paul Anka, they had Bobby Rydell, they had Bobby Darren. And everybody was very inspirational. But Bobby Darren came on, the curtains opened, and he was shirtless in a cardboard cutout bathtub with a back brush singing Splish Splash. <laughs> and, and I went, okay, that's who I want to be, right there. I want to be, because everybody else, you know, was dressed up for 16-year-olds, you know. And I went, you know, I like that. That's a great thing. He's got a sense of humor. He's not just serious. So I really got hooked on that, because I like fun. Yeah. So it was... Many years later, well, I, I, I stopped singing in the late 70s uh, on the road and everything because the band broke up in 70 and then we did a few albums, Carl Giamarisi and myself, duo albums mm-hmm. for Lou Adler. And then after the, about the mid-70s, it was like I was in my middle to late 30s, I guess. I was doing some session work and things like that, but I really wasn't working a lot as a singer. And so I drifted into the acting thing, which was another love of mine. Yeah. But... That took me like 16 years of acting and a little bit of singing in between. Like in the 80s, I sang with Olivia Newton-John and I did a lot of session work. But I was aching to get back to singing and I didn't exactly know how to do it as an old singer with no credits anymore. (laughs) And I was at my sister's house visiting and she was playing a bunch of CDs and a Bobby Darin CD came on. And I was walking around the house singing along to the CD. And later that day, she said, are you aware that you're singing Bobby Darin stuff sounded like in the same ballpark as he is, and you sounded very comfortable singing his songs? And I said, yeah, I had no idea, but I'm a big fan. So I came back home, and I went to the record store, of course, and I bought all the box sets, and I started going through music, and I couldn't believe how many songs there were that he did. And I started going through them, and I came up with like 100, then I got down to 25, and then I got a musical director when I really wanted to do this show, and he uh, helped me organize all the material into a chronological show. So we started at the beginning and ended at the end, and it was really a great process. And that's how I actually started getting into it after my sister gave me the, the hint. It took me about a year to get all the music together, and of course it was a big band, and I opened here in Los Angeles on Sunset Strip at this two-story club, 
and we packed the house, and I had a 25-piece orchestra because I figured it has to sound like the original records. And, of course, after that, I went down to 18 players and then down to, <laughs> to three players. It's like, you know, the economy starts to eat at you. But that's how I got into the Bobby Darren thing. And then right in the middle of that, I get a phone call from Billy McCubbin, who was Bobby Darren's bass player mm. for the last eight years of his life. And he called me, and I knew who he was because I did a lot of research on all these people. I thought it was going to be a cease and desist. Oh. <laughs> you know, like, oh, how dare you do this, you know? Yeah. Because the Bobby Darren people are very, very, very specific. And they don't like anybody making them a lounge lizard and stuff like that. Right. So he called, and I said, oh, God, I know who you are. And he says, we saw some video from your show. We're doing a live Heart Foundation, Bobby Darren Foundation Heart thing in Vegas at the South Point, and we'd like you to, to be part of the show. We like the way you do his music. Oh, nice. And that was really a, a thrill, because there I was up on stage with his bass player on one side and his T.K. Kelman, the guitar player, on the other, and the audience full of Bobby Darren fan club people from the last 50 years. And it was pretty crazy. And I looked over, and both of them were smiling, so I took a breath, and I said, okay, I'm okay. And that helped me a lot, because that put me in touch with their archivist, Jimmy Scalia, and it was just great, because then I got into the inside, yeah. and they helped me with archival footage and different photos and stuff like that. So then it really took off like that. And then, of course, everything kind of flattened out after a while, and I started doing more multi-act rock shows. Sure. So I'm glad you said chronologically, because, my gosh, it would be interesting, I think, to try to arrange a presentation of Bobby Darren music, because it goes back and forth between big band and pop and even flirting with crooning just a bit, say, Beyond the Sea, for oh, example. Yeah. He did country, he did oh, yeah. folk. If blues. I were a carpenter. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was yeah. Mac the Knife getting pop airplay, or did you have to be a theater geek or really into jazz to know Mac the Knife? No, I connected to Mac the Knife, I think, when I was in high school, because he recorded that. Yeah. Too. I think that was 1959 or yeah, something. Yeah, an old Copacabana and, thing. I yeah. Think, yeah. And so I, I mean, when I, I heard it and I went, wow, that's a great song. What is that? What is it about? You know, and I started digging into it. And this was in the beginning days of me thinking about being a singer, too. I was in an acapella group at the time, so I was interested mm. in any new music. And yeah, I, I mean, I started picking up and Dream Lover and Beyond the Sea amazing classical songs that you don't want to mess with at all. You don't want to change them anyway. Right. I mean, a lot of people do, but I like just presenting it as, like my CD says, I remember Darren. Oh, yeah. The presentation and the arrangement, it's just really impeccable. And I, I don't say that word lightly ah, because I you. do appreciate arrangements. Speaking of arrangements, you mentioned Splish Splash. That does appear on the I Remember Darren live disc. It's part of a medley. Yeah. Yes. Does this ever go as a standalone song for you, or is it always folded in with other songs? What happened was is I had to fold it in with that group of songs because they seemed to work together from a period of time, too. Okay. And the show was getting too long. Oh, uh, sure. I had over 28 songs, mm. and I was doing them all as full-blown songs, and I really had to like trim down. And I said, well, I don't want to eliminate songs. So I've had my MD try to put together those three songs, which is great, because it's a surprise as you go through the medley, the different dance steps you can do, you know, I mean, from Dream Lover into Queen of the Hop, yeah. which is such an underrated rock song. Oh yeah. It's like when you hear that thing, you go, yes, this is where it came from.
you know, it's got that train chugging thing to it. And every time I do it, the audience, I just hold the microphone out to them for all the little tags and they sing it, you know. Everybody knows the queen of the hop. It's like, and it's amazing to see everybody singing along. So it's kind of a highlight. Well, of course, I do like maybe three or four songs in my regular rock set that are based on Bobby Darren's period. Nice. So, uh, yeah, I still hold on to it because people always tell me, too, they say, well, I haven't heard these songs for so long. And so they really do connect just like our hits did for them. It's like they do connect to a part of their lives. And I'm happy as hell to bring it to them. And I've had some great little reviews from some of the fans at that foundation show I did. And they actually wrote them and posted them. And they just said that thank you for keeping Bobby's music alive and with such good respect. And that's basically what I set out to do, was to do the songs as close to the arrangements that I could get, because they're not really available for a lot of people, and get that done and not imitate him at all, but just put my heart and soul into what he was putting his heart and soul into. And it's kind of worked. It's kind of been a comfortable place for me to step into his shoes. Yes. And, oh, one of the tunes you do on there with <laughs> the medley, by the way. So, again, it's a historic grouping uh, because they're not exactly a group of songs which go right together in another fashion. It's very much an exercise in a dramatic change of tempo. So it would yeah. be great to see people dancing along with that and changing that. Oh, yeah. They usually do jump out of their seats for Queen of the Hop. Oh, wait. Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. One of the Darren songs that also appears on this is That's All, a great number that's more of a big band arrangement than a small combo rock unit. This is how Darren did it, as well as you did it this way on the live disc. One of the cool things about this is that you also used this as a closing tune, although you do come back in with a few Buckingham tunes for the encore, I suppose. And so I guess not really touching much on That's All, this is more of a segue into one of the Buckingham's tunes that you do is... Mercy, mercy, mercy. And this is, again, not just flirting with jazz. This is a Cannonball Adderley jazz classic. And uh, I mean, people may think of it as a Joe Zawinul tune, the writer, but right. I would just love to hear all about this. I mean, like even who brought to the table the idea of doing a jazz tune like six months after it came out? Right. Also, strangely enough, we looked in the charts when kind of a drag actually uh, was about maybe 48 or something like that. Cannonball Adderley's Mercy, Mercy, Mercy was number seven. So it's very interesting how there was a certain kind of like angel there involved or something. (laughs) But what was happening is that we were doing our first Columbia Records album called Time in Charges. 
and we were always looking for other songs that we could do on the album aside from the hits. So we were listening to different demos and different things, and we got this one demo which we jumped to the top of the pile because it was from Johnny Guitar Watson and Larry Williams, who were great R&B writers at the time. And they sent us their version with lyrics of Mercy, Mercy, Mercy. And Marty Greb, our keyboard player and myself, who sang on the record, we just went, oh my God, because we know the song already, but we're going, look at this, the lyrics work. And actually, Johnny Guitar Watson and Larry Williams actually did that song. The exact demo they sent us is the one that's on their CD oh. from 1967. So we jumped right on it and said, yeah, let's do this. And we recorded it as an album cut. And somebody at Columbia Records, God bless him, said, you know, this sounds like a hit. It's a nice little departure from what we've been doing here. And yet it still has a Buckingham feel to it. So they released it. And of course, it became a big hit. And we were like freaked out. Actually, we were on a Gene Pitney tour in 67 and we were on the bus. And about halfway through the tour, they played Mercy, Mercy, and we had no idea that they were releasing it. <laughs> and they released it without telling us. And there it was. So we had to learn the song to play it live. We had to get it together because we never thought everybody would ask for it. And so we put it together on the tour and finished the tour adding Mercy to our set because it was on the air. And that was it. Strangely enough, we were doing a club here, and I was doing my Darren show called Catalina Bar and Grill, kind of a jazz little dinner place. Mm. So we're doing our sound check, and the sound check is going really good, which is unusual. Usually you got to really pick and pick and pick. So the young guy comes up who's the mixer, and he says, how's everything sounding and everything? And I said, great, great. I said, by the way, what's your name? And he said, Ivan Zavanal. <laughs> <laughs> and and I said, excuse me? I said, are you Joe Zawinul's son? He goes, yes. <laughs> Whoa. And, he goes, and I went, oh, my God, what, what an honor to meet you. I said, you know. And he said, well, it's an honor to meet you because I used to be on the road with my dad as a kid sitting in the car on the road listening. And all of a sudden that record would come on. And I'd ask my dad, dad, who's that singing your song? These kind of things that come up after the fact are always kind of a guarantee to me that we made the right decisions, you know. Absolutely. Because, uh, yeah, the energy involved. And at that point, too, that show, Marty Greb, who sang the song with me on the record, happened to be in town with another group. And he came in that night and sang it. So we had Ivan, Marty, and me, and it was almost like, whoa. Oh, wow. This is like a, a little cult we have here. That, you know, and it was really great to be accepted by it, because he said that his father had nothing to say bad about the song. And he said he was really excited to hear us do it live and meet us, you know, so it was very cool. That would be incredibly cool. The, the Birdland oh, players yeah. right there gathered. Nice. Mm -hmm. right. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Michael Acosta Orchestra, Tim Walco, Dago Pruner. You're listening to KVC Arts on 91.9 KVCR. I'm David Fleming in conversation with Dennis Tufano, part of the lineup on the Diamond Ring and Devil Tour, coming to San Bernardino August 20th. Joined by Gary Lewis, Mitch Ryder, The Classics Four, and The Circle. More at AffordableMusicProductions.com. Here to entertain you are the Buckinghams singing two of their hit numbers. Susan, and what is love? So let's have a tremendous hand for them. Susan, 
talking about some performances which may or may not have been live. It may have been the Smothers Brothers show. This was the one with the big British flag backdrops behind all of you. And so I'm wondering, were you guys actually singing along with the record? Because it sounds like two people singing once, even when Marty's doing it. uh, The union things back then, some shows you had to lip sync, no matter what. And then some shows you had to, because of union rules of that TV show, you had to have a two-track playing the music where everybody kind of played sync. But you had to sing along, and they would have the lead vocal buried in the two-track just to have a continuity. And what happens is, is that they're playing it live. I'm singing it live. So there's an echo from the studio. Okay. And we didn't know that there. We When we were doing it, it just seemed fine. But yeah, after uh, I saw the videos, every video I've seen of it, it has that. Now, Ed Sullivan's show we did, that was all tracks for music. And I had to sing live with no other vocal going on. Oh. And you can tell it's live on that one. We did Susan and a song that was supposed to be one of our singles called What Is Love, which is another jazz R&B based tune that Marty Greb wrote. But that kind of went up in the charts, but then we lost our connection to Columbia Records and everything kind of started to go a little bit haywire. Now, those are all great moments and stuff. Thanks for asking about it. We're able to, you know, look back at all these snippets, and this is thanks to the Internet. Uh, Thank you, Al Gore. That, you know, we're (laughs) able to, you know, just check out all these little bits and see these moments with you. Oh, and again, this, I guess, goes back to the Smothers Brothers thing with those British backdrops. They accidentally perpetuated the myth or rumor that you guys were indeed British, not Chicago born and bred. Right, because we arrived at the set and Tommy Smothers came out and welcomed us. And he said, we really, you know, like your music. We like your band. We're so happy to have you on the show. We said, well, we're big fans of yours. (laughs) And he went, where's your accents? (laughs) And we said, what do you mean? We have Chicago accents. You know, it's like we're from the city and stuff. And he goes, no, no, we thought you were English. That's why we built this set. And we went, oh, and he said, we're going to have to change that. And we said, that's gigantic set. You can't change that. We're taping in two hours, you know. So we said, don't worry about it. We didn't even think about it. And we did Mercy Mercy in front of that set. Of course, the next song we did, Don't You Care, was on a different set. Oh, okay. And that's the one you can really hear the echo in the voice. But, yeah, so (laughs) we said, no, don't worry about it. But sure, as soon as we did that show and we went on tour again, everybody thought we were English. And we never played that. We tried to tell everybody. And everybody just thought that, yeah, what a great idea, you know. And the British Invasion, this Chicago band, calls themselves a name Buckingham's, kind of English-sounding. They look a little English. But that wasn't our thing. We weren't doing it for that reason. We were asked to change our name when we did a TV show in Chicago in 65. We were called the Pulsations. We were a local dance band, really. The guys in the show said, look, because of the British invasion, could you change your name to sound more British? And we said, well, we'll think about it. You know, we're just a local band, so we didn't make any records yet. The next day, a security guard came up to us and said, look, I heard what they asked you to do. Do you want to take a look at this list? I made some name choices. So 
so we looked at the list and there was about 12 names on it and it was really all kinds of stuff and then Buckingham's right in the middle of it jumped out and it was the only single word name and we went wait Buckingham's we have a fountain in Grand Park in Chicago called Buckingham Fountain it's like a gigantic colorful display of fountain at night you know it's big and so we said that'll be great we even took our first album cover, kind of a drag album, in front of Buckingham Fountain at hmm. night. So the lights were on and everything, which kind of was our way of saying, no, this is why we're called the Buckinghams. We were a little bit intimidated about the fact that trying to pretend we were English, you know. I think just in relationship to the British invasion of music, everybody thought that because we were called the Buckinghams that we were English. A lot of people, they may be from, say, Aurora or Wheaton or Evanston, you know, something like that. And yeah, they say yeah. they're from Chicago, but no, Grand Park, you can claim neighborhoods. You're actually oh, yeah. Chicago. I was, yeah, I was brought up in yeah. two neighborhoods yeah. and definitely inside the borderline. Because I ask people like what you just said, I always say, oh, you're from Chicago, where? And he goes, oh, uh, Peoria. Right. Waukegan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Was there a major overlap of players between the Pulsations and the big thing to be known later as the Buckinghams and the Chicago Transit Authority? And then, oh gosh, also right. I suppose I have to include, say, Jim Peterick and the Ides of March. There just seemed to be so much going on in the world of rock bands which were horn-driven or at least horn-supported. Yeah. You know, in Chicago, when we started out and when we were growing up, every dance we went to, there was horn bands. They had at least two horns and mostly three. So we grew up with that sound. We sometimes used it when we played live, but we couldn't always afford to have extra players. When we did the records, we said we definitely want to have horns on this, so we had to make sure that we got the right songs with the horns and everything. Jim Peterick then, right after that, well, he came out with that, definitely inspired by Chicago. Mm -hmm. And a lot of bands that started adding horns, and I think it was just a Chicago sound. And, of course, we got tagged with being, you know, the Chicago horn band sound. And at that same time, while we were making hit records and doing that and being on the road, these guys called The Big Thing were knocking people out in Chicago for like three years, playing some of the most innovative music that we could find. So finally, they did CTA, then they did Chicago, then they got out there. And it is definitely a Chicago sound evolution. And all the bands in Chicago were hot at that time. There was like seven bands on the charts locally. And it just was an explosion in Chicago. The first time in pop music it was always jazz or blues-based center for music. And all of a sudden, pop music came out of Chicago with a bang, and it was great. Kind of a drag. When you know she's been untrue With the Buckinghams, if I did the math right, you guys charted maybe five times in just 14 or 15 months. And yeah. with a kind of a drag, you had to have been only maybe 20 or 21 years old when you knocked the monkeys out of first place. I think they had I'm a Believer. Yeah. Were you too busy recording yeah, we, to be able to enjoy and maybe be awestruck watching these things go up the charts as quick and as far as they did? Well, we were pretty much working hard. Yeah, we were on the move all the time when all that happened. And we were kind of surprised that Columbia kept releasing the record so quickly because while we were on the road, they would pull us off the road when we were in New York and uh, we would do basic tracks for singles. 
This way they had them in the can while we were still touring, and then we would come back again when they got that all straightened out, and we would do the vocals and everything, and then they would add horns, whatever. So we were a constant moving machine. It was kind of rough because when we got Billboard magazine, we were off our first label, which was USA Records, because they didn't like kind of a drag and they wouldn't release it. So at the end of the year, when the contract was up, because we were contracted to sides, not total records. So the last side that was in the contract was there, sitting there, kind of a drag, and we kept begging to release it, and they wouldn't. They didn't think it was right for the time or something. Wow. They released it because they had from the contract, and they released us. We had no more contract with them. And our keyboard player, who was actually played on kind of a drag, left because he didn't think it was going to happen. Hmm. Well, he wasn't like a dyed-in-the-wool musician at the time. He was looking for other things to do. So he left. So we're sitting there really depressed now. We don't have a record company. We don't have a keyboard player. So we were having a meeting, and our drummer, John Polis, who started the band, comes in with Billboard magazine and throws it on a table, and he goes, you want to see something? Opens it up to the Hot 100, and there we were, kind of a drag, number one with a bullet. It knocked the Monkees and the Rolling Stones out of first and second place. And we were like sitting there going, what? I mean, it was like we couldn't understand anything at that point. We said, how can we have a number one record? And we got nothing else. We don't have a record company. We don't have anything right now. That's when we really had to dig in, and we found Marty Greb, of course, for keyboards, because he played in a band called The Exceptions in Chicago, and they were probably the best band that I ever heard. And the bass player in that band was Peter Cetera. There's the crossover, then, yeah. Yeah, was. who then became Chicago. And Marty, we solicited Marty, and he said, yes, let's do that. And we played together, and it sounded exactly like the right match. And he raised the bar in our group, too, Marty. So he was a multi-instrumentalist. So he was able to do horn replication because he played saxophone and the Hammond organ, a true Hammond organ. Mm. Matter of fact, he was one of Hammond's guys. They would send him an organ wherever it was so he could play mm. it because he was one of, the, one of those special guys that can actually operate the B3. That was it. That was the crossovers. And then, of course, when we broke up a few years later, Marty played with all kinds of people, Bonnie Raitt and Leon Russell. Hmm. And then he actually was in Chicago for a year and a half because he knew all those guys. <laughs> he was working with those guys on Rush Street in Chicago. So, yeah, that little music circle that happened from like 63 on was big. It was big. It was like a volcano when it finally happened, you know. So, yeah, it was great to be part of that kind of energy. Absolutely. For this edition of KVC Arts, it's been conversation with Dennis Tufano with some music from the Buckinghams, some from Dennis Tufano's live disc, I Remember Darren. He'll be back on the next KVC Arts, and he'll be in the region soon as part of the lineup on the Diamond Ring and Devil Tour. That's coming to San Bernardino August 20th with the Classics 4, Mitch Ryder, Gary Lewis and the Playboys, and The Circle. More on the concert at affordablemusicproductions.com. And with that, we wrap up another edition of KVC Arts. Thanks again to Dennis Tufano, as well as to Nathan Gothels of Affordable Music Productions for getting me in touch with Dennis. Here at KVCR, thanks to Lillian Vasquez, Rick Dulock, Paulina Garcia, and Sharina Wad. Many past KVC Arts programs can be found through iTunes, NPR One, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And most past shows are at kvcrnews.org arts. Music beds and themes heard on KVC Arts composed and performed by Sean Longstreet, so thanks to Sean as well. I'm David Fleming. Thanks especially to you for listening and for your support. 
which you can do any time of the year. Go to kvcrnews.org support. And thanks again.